sometimes it's not enough just for us to be passively libertarian. Sometimes we must be actively anti-authoritarian. You, as a free, beautiful, independent human being with inalienable rights, own yourself. As a result, you can do what you want with your own body and own the product of your labor. The implication is that it is morally wrong to initiate force against someone else or their property because to do so is to violate their rights. Therefore, all human interactions should be free of force, fraud, and coercion, and people should be free to exercise their rights, limited only by respect for the rights of others. When you learned don't hit and don't steal, it wasn't unless you work for the government. When you learned thou shalt not kill, it wasn't unless your dear leader gives you a gun and a uniform and a one-way ticket to the other side of the world. Government is force, an opinion with a gun, and force is a poor substitute for persuasion. Governments frighten us into thinking we need them, but with knowledge, philosophy, and technology, we are empowering ourselves and each other to have the courage to move past the paradigm of statism and restrain government to only moral uses of force, at least until we replace it with the cooperative free market solutions that will soon render it obsolete. All right, that was Adam Kokesh. I am also Adam here with Adam House. That's a, that's a that's a that's a lot of first men right there <laughs> and uh this is our for now final episode of on liberty and we want to use this opportunity i think to um in a way summarize uh kind of what we've been talking about for the past few weeks and sort of nail down some ideas and thoughts that um we think are worth uh, re-emphasizing and, and sort of um, elaborating on, I guess. Um, if it's okay, I'll just I'll start with what I wanted to say as well. But so there, there has been a path paved out hundreds of years ago by people who were brave enough to stand up to a government and say, we're not going to take your shit, get the hell out of our country. And, um, we, we, we got this, we're going to do this on our own. And they risked that a lot of them lost their lives, risked their lives to, um, to fight off that government with physical violence and push them out. And, 200 years later, 250 something years later, it seems like um, we've kind of come full circle as a society. And that's disappointing and shameful. Um, I think that for us or for anyone, for a lot of people right now, to sit back and look at the way that society, government is run and say, you know, for us to have to have things like organizations and, and activism and um, for us to have to basically fight, fight tooth and nail for every single basic right that was already guaranteed to us um, from the beginning um, is disgusting. And for us to have to take time out of our lives and to in some cases, for some activists, risk careers, risk family, risk everything to fight for what we believe in because 
our government is too large, uh, too corrupt, too incompetent, too disorganized, uh, and just basically um, too ineffective to really run society in the way that it wants to. Um, and to guarantee that we have the freedoms that we've been guaranteed to begin uh, from the beginning, um, for us to have to do that, it, it's a statement of utter disgrace to not just the American government, but to, but to every government um, on the planet that claims to value human life, human rights, uh, human dignity, um, free, uh, free market values, um, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Um, you know, so I, I'm just really at the point of no return for my discontent with the state of the world. And I think that, um, I don't think that there, there will ever be a time when any of us, any of us who give a shit should shut up and stop talking and uh, back down and uh, repent of our sins against government or against, uh, in this, I say government, but I'm also, I'll, I'll loop into that large oligarchical category, big religion and big corporations um, in addition to big government. And um, I don't think, yeah, there should never be a time where we're ready to just back off and allow things to happen. Because when that happens, then whatever freedoms and liberties, whatever minute freedoms and liberties that still exist, uh, will have will have dissipated. Um, in any event that I ever have kids, or you ever have kids, or any, or you know, we're passing that on to them. So. Um, just it's kind of my thoughts on that I'm just really to the point of of absolute disdain and disgust and uh yeah that's all <laughs> that's kind of where i wanted to open with well i can totally um totally empathize with the sentiment and, you know, first thing it brings to my mind is the fact that uh, the struggle for liberty and freedom is an eternal struggle. Um, you know, I think sometimes we like to think about uh, an end goal and how we're going we're, we're gonna to achieve an end goal somewhere. And we kind of have like this uh, uh, idea of, well, you know, a lot of people from all different types of uh, philosophies and, and political persuasions are guilty of the utopian idealism and, um, you know, carrying it, carrying the philosophy to the point where you can't be practical at all. Everything's just an academic exercise. Um, but that's kind of getting away from, from the point. I, um, I understand that, that, you know, we're never going to achieve uh, the ideal. We're, ne we're never going to get to a utopia. But <clears throat> what, we, what we do have to take into consideration is that 
there are always uh, challenges to our liberty and our freedom. It doesn't matter what age, what time you live in, um, you know, through history, it's, it's the same thing. There's, there's always going to be these threats to freedom. And it only, you know, it, it takes every generation to fight against tyranny to keep it from happening, but it only takes one generation to lose it. Yeah. Uh, to lose freedom, to lose freedom. It only takes one generation to lose freedom. And uh, it may or may not ever be reattained after that. So um, to me, that just highlights the importance of eternal vigilance of uh, those who wish not to live under tyranny and despotism and, um, and to always, you know, always uh, be ready to stand guard, always be ready to speak truth to power. Um, you know, in your opening statement, you're, you're talking about how, you know, it's, it's gone so far at this point already um, that it, it feels pretty hopeless and, and it's, you know, it's frustrating, it's uh, infuriating in a lot of ways. And I would say, you know, um, while it's not good to lash out necessarily in anger um certainly not a good thing to employ violence behind anger i uh, do believe that there is a righteous anger and there's there's a time uh, when it is absolutely and ultimately appropriate to be very angry um now i would issue a little caveat that i i don't again i don't believe that that anger needs to uh, compel us into violence. But I do think that uh, anger sometimes, if we don't let it get out of hand, it can be siphoned into something constructive and productive. And I found this also as a, uh, a combat veteran of the United States military, as a war veteran um, who has struggled with chronic severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, you know, Anger is just one of the many negative emotions and feelings that we have to deal with sometimes. And uh, as a recovering uh, war veteran with post-traumatic stress, I've learned that you have to be able to breathe. You have to be able to stop. You have to be able to breathe and you have to be able to turn that energy into something productive. Now, when I say this, I think it can also be applied on a much larger scale, right? Because what we see in the United States right now with the uh, polarization of our politics is a lot of fear and a lot of anger and a lot of hatred. And uh, I, I was watching some videos of some of the demonstrations in the streets the other day. And, you know, some of the protesters were, were friendly with other protesters from, from other movements that showed up and ended up protesting alongside of them. And some of the protesters were not getting along. And one of the protesters, uh, uh, there was a video shot that just caught a, a little piece of him and another person who were having a discussion in the street. And he said, he said, you know, we need, we Americans just need to get our head out of our ass and realize that we are not each other's enemy. We have a common enemy and it's that building 
building right over there into the to the legislative or the capitol building and he said that's he said that capital right there is the enemy all of us people out here the government just stole all of our money and now is trying to get us to fight with each other yeah and to me that was just such a like a succinct way to wrap up exactly what's happening in our country right now uh the the uh covid-19 response the spending monetary spending response uh the printing of fiat money by our federal government to uh in response to this thing trying to deal with this um you know it 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 can't be described as anything else but corporatism at its height right and that that's exactly what has happened is that they have stolen the american people's money and concentrated it in the hands of a very few uh all the wealth and basically told the rest of the country uh that you're shit out of luck and you all go ahead and fight with each other and um uh you know i find that to be a, a pretty sad state of affairs and right now you know i mean i i find myself getting angry um this latest story that came out today is what the 18th of july uh saturday in in 2020 and uh, and the latest story, the last uh, 24, 48 hours has or so has been the uh, federal agents from apparently the Department of Homeland Security and Border Patrol and potentially other agencies that have been deployed to the city of Portland in Oregon. And these uh, agents are dressing in uh, military uniforms, um, you know, with the, the helmets and the, uh, carrying their ARs, their, their rifles, and they've got all the, the full getup. They're, they, they look like they're ready for war and they're not marked. They don't have their names displayed. They don't have their agencies displayed or anything. And they're running around in unmarked vans, minivans, like family minivans, unmarked family minivans and accosting people on the streets of Portland. Mm. Now, some of them may or may not be protesters. Some of them may very well be, uh, uh, have evil intentions and be violent people, but that's, that's still no excuse for us to bypass the constitution Right. To bypass all the rights, you know, what our government, our federal government right now is doing is bypassing all of the Bill of Rights and your due process. And they're just nabbing people off of the street, uh, just randomly, you know, pulling people off the street like it's some kind of black bag program. They don't have to announce themselves. They don't have to, to, to uh, read Miranda rights. They don't, they're not doing any of that. They're just, they're, I've watched some of these videos. These uh, federal agents are just pulling up alongside a bunch of protesters. The one guy I saw got out of his van and he's dressed like he's uh, a soldier in Afghanistan. And he's pointing his AR directly at the crowd in front of him. In front of the, he's he pointed it at several people, unarmed people on the sidewalk. And then as they nabbed this person off the sidewalk and threw him into a van and took off, that, that soldier, that federal agent, told the people standing there as they're screaming, who are you and where are you taking our friend? What are you doing? 
he tells them, if you try to follow me, I will shoot you. Do you understand me? And then he gets in the van and leaves with this person and they don't know who he is, who the people, other people in the van were other than they're, they're dressed in military garb and sporting patches that say police, but they're not identifying their agency. They're not identifying their individual name or where authority they work for or anything. So this is Donald Trump's Gestapo in the streets of the United States of America, just nabbing people off the street right now. And yes, I'm very pissed off about it. I think I just got myself banned on Twitter because I got on Twitter about it. I saw that there are some retired generals who are speaking out against this as well, saying yeah. that the, pres the president of the United States has overstepped his authority. Again. And I've, he I've heard, yeah, uh, again, and uh, an army ranger, that I know said that uh, that he he also believed that these protesters were well within their right uh, to arm themselves and resist being arrested this way with deadly force, and I agree. I, I believe that's correct. Uh, I, I don't believe any. You know, there's no exception for police or any other government agents. Uh, to be able to bypass your due process and constitutional rights and just nab you like some kind of Gestapo or Stasi on the street. Like there's no precedent, there's no legal precedent that's lawlessness. It's terrorism on the part of the state. Right. And that's where we are right now. And I'm, you know, I, I'm glad that we're, uh, I made a post about it. I tweeted about it. And I'm glad that we're making a, a permanent video record here right now because I want it to be, abundantly clear years into the future exactly where I stood when the United States federal government launched a campaign of terror against American citizens in our own streets. And that I want my fellow Americans to understand that you always have a right of self-defense, whether somebody's wearing a badge or not. Okay, government thugs that act lawlessly and uh, terroristically against the American people and our rights, they have no ex expectation uh, of being dealt with peacefully. Uh, we can shoot these people, we can kill these people, and we're well within our rights to do so as we defend ourselves from their des despotism and tyranny. And so, you know, I'm not advocating violence. I'm advocating that you do have the right of self-defense. I'm not advocating for violence. I hope that people can understand that those are two different things. Uh, but when federal troops uh, or federal agents, you know, step over the line and do something like this, look, you're, you're acting against the constitution. Um, I believe that, you know, the ACLU has already filed a lawsuit about this. Uh, there's investigations going on. Uh, the congressman from uh, Oregon, uh, Ron Wyden, and some of the others from out there have tweeted and sent out messages and things telling Donald Trump to get his damn federal agents out of their state, out of their city, that they don't belong there, that they're, they're not authorized to be there, and that they're, they're acting against uh, the people uh, unlawfully, lawlessly, I think was even the words that they used. Yeah. So, um, you know, if we're if we're going to look at this episode as, 
you know, we call this what what is the state of freedom right now? It's sort of our state of the union address as a libertarian, I guess, at at this moment in our history. Um, you know, I, I I always want to be hopeful for the future, but what what I see right now is extremely distressing, and um, and I, I I don't know much else to say about this particular situation. Uh, it's just one of many, though. It's one of many things that, that we're dealing with as Americans right now where, where our government has already uh, gone beyond the pale. And, and in my mind, they've already crossed the red line and we're justified in doing whatever we got to do to make it stop. So that's yeah. where I stand. That's where I stand right now. And I think that the damage is um, like, we're not going to see the full effects of this for, for months. Um, the between COVID, uh, especially with COVID and the economic shutdown and the corporatist bailouts. Um, yeah, during this COVID-19 thing, government has done two things very well. Uh, protect its own interests and uh, protect the interests of the large corporations that own it. And that's pretty much it when it comes to normal everyday people people who are uh working in offices of businesses even offices of the large corporations of the governments <laughs> nobody gives a shit about the employees right um it's an afterthought um the work from home um the work from home suggestion that's been sort of um, popularized by Facebook and Zoom <laughs> because they benefit from it um, is like a small like band-aid on a much larger wound because a lot of people don't have the luxury of working from home a lot of people are still working in restaurants and uh, factories and warehouses and um, you know uh, and I think I was talking about rent there for a bit. Um, yeah, soon, very soon, I think probably in the next couple of months, we're going to start to see a huge rise in homelessness because people are going to be evicted from their houses because they haven't been working. Um, a lot of people, most people um, in that situation have been laid off from their jobs. They can't afford to pay rent. They literally have no way of paying for food so, um, and a lot of landlords and a lot of these large corporations that own property and own apartment complexes and everything else have already styling, started filing petitions with the court to evict. And um, as soon as that like um, pause on evictions goes through, then those eviction notices are gonna go to the court yeah. and they're gonna expect to be expected to show up in uh, like a virtual courtroom and who the fuck who's on the edge of eviction uh, has any spare change to pay for Wi-Fi to be able to access a virtual courtroom, you know, to pay for internet, pay 40 to $80 a month for internet when they can't, you know, afford to pay bills, afford to pay for food, definitely can't afford to pay rent. Um, and it's all because of how poorly um 
governments, not just the federal government, but state and local governments have handled um, COVID-19. And then you just tack on to that, the, the, the disgusting response that the federal government has had to um, the protests to police brutality and the way that the left has sort of basically in some ways bought up the activism movement, just like they did with Occupy Wall Street, right? Just like the right did with the Tea Party movement. They started to buy up and pay, um, you know, paid activists to go and um, start riots and stuff. And there's just so many more questions um, and there's so much more work to be done. And if we're asking ourselves, what is the state of liberty? Uh, I don't mean to like be an, uh, uh, a pessimist but it's it's not great <laughs> i mean for every milestone that we've hit in this movement for every um for every um marijuana every every decriminalization of marijuana every uh you know every marriage that's been able to happen between um the lgbt community for every single right that we've gained over the past, I'll just say like 50 or 60 years since like the civil rights movement. Basically libertarianism has been kind of a thing. Um, we've lost so much more. And it seems like um, between perpetual war, perpetual poverty, and uh, just um, a, glaring and extremely obvious uh, lack of consideration for just normal people being allowed to do basic things like collect rainwater in some places, right? Just basic shit um, that I just, I feel like it's, it's a, uh, we, there's so much more work to be done. And we're, we're nowhere even close to where we should be as a society. We've regressed, I feel like. I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's the most accurate term. We've, we've regressed. We've allowed over the past several decades for ourselves to just sort of become complacent and happy with our $40,000 a year jobs, happy to pay taxes that get shoveled straight into the military industrial complex or straight into a social security sludge fund that gets reallocated to use for some other bullshit. Um, and um, I, I, I just wonder when we're, when, when we're going to stop, like, like what you said, when we're going to stop fighting each other and start thinking about who, who the real problem of this whole situation is. Who can we look to and point at and say that's the problem? I mean, and I, I can't even defend, like, I would say, like, you know, government's a problem. I always harp on government inefficiency because it is extremely inefficient in almost every sense. If you've ever dealt with the government in any capacity, and I've dealt with them on multiple levels, from immigration to employment to all sorts of um, capacities, not just, not, not only just, like, your normal going to the DMV and get a driver's license or whatever, but when it comes to 
infrastructure, when it comes to bureaucracy, uh, when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes, I mean, literally every single uh, tentacle of the, uh, of the government apparatus that it touches just becomes tainted with laziness and inefficiency. And um, it's partially due to, uh, I guess, the way the government's run in general, but it's also because, right, I'm gonna hit on government employees real quick. I really, government employees are extremely inefficient for the most part. I know a lot of government employees who are passionate about their job and who are effective. Um, anywhere, these people, a lot of them ex military, but for every good government employee you have, you have 10 who are just leeches off the system. Um, and every single one of them will, if you're a normal person who works at a normal company, at a store, at a factory, at any other sort of job, uh, they will look down on you and spit on you and turn their nose up at you and say that you don't deserve, uh, you know, because you're not a civil servant, you don't deserve the, uh, the, the same sort of benefits that come with being a government employee. Um, so I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a police officer. I think I've talked about her before on a show when we were talking about the police state or whatever. And um, she was talking about a situation that she was uh, witnessing with um, people, I don't know how to really phrase it any more nicely, but um, I guess I'll, I'll do it from like a, a top level, a top down level, but like, um, so government has all these social welfare programs that they put into place to supposedly help people, right? But um, when those programs are guaranteed with no consequences for not doing things like getting employment or looking for employment or starting a business or anything like that. Uh, when welfare and WIC and that kind of stuff becomes sort of the, the get out of jail free card for, for a lot of people, um, then there become, there becomes like an entitlement complex, right? Where, um, you feel like you're entitled to get a paycheck from the government every month, whether or not you contribute to society or not. And it's the exact same. And I, I, I say that I bring up welfare and stuff because that's exactly what government service is to for government employees. It's a welfare system that um, once you become uh, sort of uh, vetted through, I think is like a year of decent service, you know, decent work, then you're, um, you're basically granted free passage for the rest of your life, no matter how well you perform or work. So that's why whenever you send a documentation and paperwork to get something accomplished through the enormous bureaucratic system that is the federal government, not even the federal government, any government, um, but uh, when you wonder why it takes months and months and you know, sometimes years for things to happen for you through a government bureaucratic process like immigration, which I've dealt with, um, yeah, you're you're going to um, that. That's why it's because 
most people who work in government probably hate their jobs and they just do it because it's, it's a welfare check. Um, that's really all that it is. And so, I mean, couple that in with just how enormous and overblown and wasteful um, the government is. And you can start to see why it's inefficient and ineffective. And the only thing it's really effective as effective at, like I said before, is protecting corporations and um, protecting its own interests, which is itself. Um, it's it's like George Carlin said, it's a big club and, and you ain't in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, a big club and, and we're not in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, and I had said uh, ever since... <clears throat> Like in 2008, uh, from being deployed to Afghanistan, uh, I got back in 2008 just in time for the, uh, the Bush, Bush administration's bank bailouts. And, uh, and to, to see that happen, you know, the news cycle, I, I got back just in time for that news cycle. Uh, so got to watch it happen from my barracks, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, back on post <clears throat> and I said then that uh, Americans largely don't realize just what an ivory tower that we're living in um, you know compared to the rest of the world and it shows when you live overseas in other countries and, and whatnot I'm sure you've experienced this being deployed around the world as well that there are like when I was in Europe you know, the average guy on the street in Europe tends to know some about his country's foreign policy. Right. Uh, and even the foreign policy of the, the nations, at least around him, that border his country. Of course, in Europe, you know, if you're a European country, you probably have borders with multiple neighbors. Right. So people kind of have to understand the politics of what's going on around them. Um you know, they're, they're kind of left without a choice. And so I think in a way they tend to, uh, to uh, engage with the matters of foreign policy more uh, and matters also of monetary policy, of, of, of the uh, policy both of their country and European. So, I, you know, I, I see this, uh, I, I, I see this situation where, Americans are kind of cut off from the rest of the world. You know, we've got a, an ocean on either side of us. Uh, we've got a, a very friendly nation to the north um, that doesn't have, like, you know, we don't have problems with Canada um, and, and not really, you know, like we're friends. And then in Mexico to the south and people can say, you know, whatever problems as as far as foreign policy goes like we're we're not really looking to go to war with one of our next door neighbors that's just not something that the average american would ever see happening right but we point. will certainly so, contribute to their to their drug war uh and make sure that that yeah. keeps going you know we'll certainly yeah yeah inflame yeah. that yeah and providing the, the weapons drug and war, money and yeah obviously the drug war is another huge issue we could get into in the discussion about the current state of freedom in the United States and 
you know, that's been a problem for decades now. It's, it's been an assault on our liberties and our freedoms. That's, you know, I've been saying for years now that the drug war, the, the government's drug war is a hot shooting war against the American people yeah. in which there are casualties oh, yeah. uh, over the decade. There, there've been plenty of people who have been murdered by the United States government's drug war and countless more lives just completely destroyed by this government. Um, and, and that's not to, that's not to even talk about all the millions of lives that, uh, that the American has destroyed overseas through the military warfare state. So, um, but I, I want to, I want to come back to, I want to come back to this issue of, uh, you know, this, this criminal oligarchy that's, that's in control of our government right now. Uh, and again, this is, this is not uh, pointing the finger um, to choose sides between Republicans and Democrats either. Uh, again, it's not mutually exclusive. They're, they're both bad and they're, they're, they're both responsible for where we are right now. And, uh, and so I'm not, I'm not playing that game where we choose one or the other, or we have to choose face side or what I'm not playing that game. You know, the Republicans and Democrat uh, parties are, are both horrible. They're, they're both uh, inherently in, entrenched in corporatism and in this, criminal, corrupt, crony corporatism that's going on in, in D.C. And so since 2008, um, you know, they bailed out the banks and basically all they did was kick the can down the road. And, and instead of letting the market fail and correct itself, the businesses that should have failed, instead of letting them fail like a free market would do uh, right. and, and come to a natural state of correction, uh, of balance, of equilibrium again, our government decided to inflate the bubble. And not only to continue to flight that, inflate that bubble, but to, to add other uh, programs that only exacerbated the, the inflation. Uh, you know, there's a student debt bubble that has been inflating oh, yeah. for, for many years now as well that most people you know, keep track of this stuff have been noticing and talking about some of there's other bubbles. Uh, housing is still a bubble really. But anyway, um, I think one of the things that's incumbent upon us, uh, both as libertarians, but even if you're not a libertarian, just as an American, and maybe even not as American, just as a human being, okay, on all many, many various levels, I think it's incumbent upon us to try to make sure that we keep the focus where it belongs. Um, and again, not get forced into taking sides and being pushed back into our leftist and right-wing tribes, but to understand that left and right plus black and white and all other races and colors and creeds and religions and whatnot all that together is united might. And we can use that left and right plus black and white equals united might. And that we, we need to keep uh, our focus on the true enemy, uh, our enemy being the state itself. And, and while Americans continue to become more divided and more polarized, uh, I think it's better that cooler heads prevail 
um, that we continue to look for ways to bridge the gaps, uh, to build bridges with one another, uh, to find common ground, and uh, simultaneously um, condemn both the radical violent extremes of the left and the right, uh, the people that go that far and, and, and initiate aggression against, uh, against their fellow Americans. Um, I think, you know, we need to try to, to, to keep the focus on the fact that we're really not each other's enemy. You know, right. our, our common enemy is, is this corporatist state and specifically the, 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 the uh, political leaders that are in charge right now. That's our enemy. That's our true enemy. That's, uh, you know, different Americans. We, we're not each other's enemy. And our government wants to play us for a fool want us to to be fools they want us to be foolhardy they want us to fight with each other out here and as long as we're fighting with each other that keeps the um the real problem from being identified because we're all distracted from the real problem right it's like this whole it's like this whole argument between socialism and capitalism now you know, I believe that using uh, using your ability, especially in this modern age, to educate yourself is uh, is a good thing. And the, one of the things uh, I think one of the problems we get into is we get into these echo chambers that are by modern technology, and and I think that's a problem. We need to get out of our echo chambers. We need to to listen to what leftists are saying. We need to listen to what the right wingers are saying. We need to listen to what uh, moderates are saying. Uh, we need to listen to what everybody else is saying. Tune in to other people's media. You know, um, even back before the internet, back in my younger days, like in the 80s, the 90s, you know, uh, I was one of those guys, I would read all the magazines. I would read US News and World Report. I would read Time Magazine. I would read Newsweek Magazine. But I would also read stuff like The New Republic, The Weekly Standard, Mother Jones, um, you know, Foreign Policy Magazine. Yeah. And from the left and the right, you know, and take all these different perspectives and, uh, and think for yourself and, and come to conclusions on your own. And don't listen to other people's hyperbole and rhetoric because... Uh, you know, they very well could be wrong. And especially if they're trying to make a name for themselves, if, that, if that's their job is to be on TV like Fox News or whatever. Right. You know, we, we know that those people, like anytime Fox News gets in trouble for slandering somebody's name on their, one of their broadcasts and they get taken to court, the defense that they use in court is that they're not real news. They even admit in court that they are news entertainment. And, and, you know, entertainment being the key word. It's, it's about keeping emotions inflamed. It's not right. about good news. It's not about journalism. It's not about hard news. It's not about facts and truth. It's not about any of that. It's about entertainment to keep uh, people polarized and inflamed against their neighbor uh, that are, that's from a different political persuasion. Right. But there's, uh, what's his, I forget how you pronounce his name. I, one of the programs that I tune into from time to time used to be the Young Turks. And I don't oh, remember yeah. how to pronounce, uh, is it Chank, Chank Younger, Unger, 
I don't know his I, name. I apologize if if he ever watches this. I apologize <laughs> to you, sir. I can't remember how to pronounce your name correctly, uh, and I tend to tend to actually disagree with that that fellow pretty often. Yeah. But you know, he has some really he's had had a really one a really astute observation that I, I caught one time. He was talking about how it's really bullshit in the United States to talk about this capitalism versus socialism thing because we don't have either one of those here. Right. Um, uh, you know, I think he, he mentioned the fact that what we really have is a mixed economy and that's correct. That's what we have is a mixed economy. Uh, but what this economy has turned into is a corporatist economy, uh, and, and a corporatist government. Right. So what happens is, you know, you've got the people that are on these polar opposites, and Democrats, a lot of times, are really good at diagnosing what is wrong with Republican politics. And they're usually right. And Republicans are usually pretty good about diagnosing what's wrong or, or um, you know, what doesn't work about the, Democratic's, uh, the Democrat politics and their positions. And they're usually right. But see, when you're in one of these tribes... Uh, as a Republican or a Democrat, you tend to only be able to see the flaws of your opposite. And you don't tend to see uh, your own confirmation bias about the tribe that you're in and the problems with it. Well, I think for those of us who are libertarians who are not beholden to any narrative from the left or the right, from the Republican or Democratic parties, it gives us the ability to be more objective on the outside looking in and say, you know, I, well, I used to be a Republican, so I know what it's like inside looking out over there. But now that I'm a libertarian from looking in, I really know the right wing. I can really understand the right wing because now uh, I don't have to toe the line for anybody. I, I don't have to protect the narrative for, for some conservative thinker or uh, a politician or uh, famous, you know, conservative person, uh, personality or whatever. I, I don't have to protect that narrative. I, I, I don't have to, uh, to toe the line for anybody. And so when you're not in either one of those two major, the two biggest parties, Republicans and Democrats, you're on the outside looking in and you can be more objective about both parties and the problems with both of them. Mm -hmm. And so see, here's, here's what we end up with as libertarians. It's like, you know, I am an atheist and I tend not to like uh, any type of religion. All right. So you cut out like right after you said religion. And so I missed like a, a good chunk of what you just said. So can you, okay. sorry. <laughs> So basically what I'm talking about is, you know, being a libertarian and being on the outside of the Democratic and Republican parties and being able to be an outsider looking in. Yeah. And as, a, as an individual, I say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-mixing church and state for the separation of church and state. And as an atheist, I, I prefer not to have any kind of religion uh, that I don't, you know, I, I don't want it in my life. Right. Now, I'm also an anti-racist. I don't. I don't want to be around racists. I. I. I don't want to associate with them. I've 
You know, I heard enough of those stupid racist jokes, the same ones over and over again when I was a kid. And I'm just, I, I, I don't, I, you know, if I never hear another racist joke in my life, it'll be fine. I'll, I'll be just fine. You know, I don't right. want that shit in my life. I also don't like uh, homophobia. I, I hate it when, when people feel the need to bash homosexuals and gay people and lesbians. And, you know, uh, at the same time, you know, the same person that wants to so as a libertarian on the outside looking in, having the Republican and the Democratic parties being able to look more objectively at both, um, you know, as a, on one hand, as an individual, I don't like, uh, I don't like religion in my government. I want to keep religion and government separate. So I'm an atheist and tend to be an anti-theist. I'm also, uh, I'm also against racism, and I'm, I'm an anti-racist. I've heard enough of those stupid racist jokes, the same ones over and over when I was a kid. I don't care to ever hear any of them ever again. Um, I don't care to associate with racist people. I also don't like homophobia. Um, you know, they're, it, it's just it's unfortunate that people are treated as second-class citizens or made fun of or looked at differently because of their sexual orientation. And, I, and I, you know, people who just want to uh, co constantly uh, talk about gays and homosexuals, you know, in, in a negative way, I just, I, I just don't care to be around that. You know, right. these are the same people, by the way, who will, who will watch lesbian porn and jerk off to it and then they show up at church on Sunday and say amen to the preacher preaching about how homosexuality is an abomination to God. Right. So, so, and, and when I, when I espouse those beliefs, people from the right wing will automatically try to pigeonhole me and push me into a corner and force me into their idea of a social justice warrior snowflake or whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, all right. Here's the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that I tend to be a Second, a second Amendment absolutist. Uh, I believe, even without the Second Amendment, I believe you have an, an, an inalienable, a natural right to bear arms, to uh, arm yourself with the means of self-defense. Yep. And I also tend to be for free markets. Uh, I'm a market anarchist as far as that. That goes. So I'm for completely free enterprise and free markets. And these kinds of positions uh, tend to cause leftists to want to pigeonhole me and force me into a corner of what is their definition of, you know, this right wing uh, kind of fascist type of thing or whatever. Right. Yeah. And the, the truth of it is that I'm neither one of those things. I, 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 it, maybe I'm both, but I'm, I'm neither one. You know, I, I, you can't push me into one or the other. Now, I don't think any of those are radical positions. Right. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think it's radical to be for separation of church and state. I don't think it's radical to be for free markets. I don't think it's radical to, uh, to find racism and homophobia uh, pungent. And I don't think it's it's radical to believe, you know, in free markets, uh, the Second Amendment, whatever. I think 
think those are all pretty common positions that a lot of Americans have that are not really radical in, in any way other than that they're just true to first principles of liberty and freedom. Right. But our government would tell you that somebody with my libertarian beliefs is a radical. Now, my position would be that, no, I'm not a radical. I, I'm just holding true to first principles. And I believe that, that it's the government that's actually radical. Yeah. You know, we, we, you know, whatever ideas we may have had as Americans at the beginning of our country uh, about small government, limited government, uh, minarchism, however you want to put it, um, those ideals and principles have been abandoned long ago yeah. uh, for the corporate, the corporate system that we have. So what, what I was getting to, though, is that our government has a situation where they can have the, the system that we have right now, and there's Republicans out there saying, this is not capitalism, this is socialism. And so they say we need capitalism because what we have right now is socialism. And uh, the Democrats will say, well, no, what we have right now is not socialism. What we have right now is capitalism. Capitalism has brought us these problems. Right. Well, the, the problem is, the fact of it is that it's not capitalism or socialism, either one, but that's what we fight about under the guise of socialism and capitalism, our political leaders just keep supporting corporatism. Yeah. And it's completely to their benefit for us people to be out here fighting over whether, you know, this is a capitalist government or a socialist government, you know, and in all reality, it's just a corporatist government. It's neither one yeah. of the other. So again, it's just, it's, uh, it, it's what I want to encourage my fellow Americans to do is not to allow yourself to be polarized, uh, not allow yourself to be radicalized, so to speak, um, uh, but uh, to embrace uh, the truth, to embrace uh, solidarity and unity with your fellow Americans as much as possible and to not allow the media or the politicians or anyone else to distract you from who is the real enemy. What, what, uh, you know, who and what we should actually stay focused on. That is the problem. My fellow Americans, I am not your enemy. You're not my enemy. We're not each other's enemy. Okay. We have a common enemy. Our mutual enemy is the state. And anything that distracts from that and seeks to, uh, to push people to the left or to the right or to divide people down the middle, anything that distracts from the, 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 the focus of who our true enemy, the state, is, uh, uh, is heading in the wrong direction. It's, it's taken us away from what we really need to be doing and, and thinking about right now. And it's only going to get worse. You know, from here, the problems are only going to get worse. People, people are only going to get uh, more angry as time goes on with, you know, as these, uh, uh, the COVID-19 monetary bailouts, you know, filters down through the economy and 
the effects of the lockout and our lockdown and all that filters down through the economy. Right. And then the fact that our government is just so big that it doesn't matter who gets control of it. It's just that it's so big and so powerful, powerful and authoritarian that the stakes are too high. Right. And that's why people, that's why people are so scared of the other side getting control of the state because now the state is so big and it is so powerful that the stakes are so high that it is dangerous when your opponent has the wheels of power, the reins of government. And that's not a Republican or a Democrat problem. That's a big government problem. Right now, in particular, that's a big government corporatist oligarchy problem. And as far as I'm concerned, it's time for Americans to rise and resist and fight back. Yeah. All right, so at the beginning of the video, um, our good friend Adam Kokesh uh, opened with uh, sort of what I would say is like a one minute shotgun blast of what it means to like be a libertarian and, and, and principles of self-ownership and anti-authoritarianism. Um, and I think that um, if, if you're, if you're confused about like why or how things got to this point or why things are the way they are now. Uh, I think personally, when you, when you abandon those principles and when you, when you turn yourself over to government to manage, um, through systems of, uh, welfare, through drug war, through, um, military intervention through economic policies. When you hand over all the power to somebody else, you, um, you sort of like we've done this to ourselves effectively through very slow systematic process. We've, um, allowed, yeah, we, we met the enemy and, and the enemy is us. Yeah. <laughs> we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. Um, so just, look up i don't know do some reading i don't have on liberty here with me john stuart mill i don't have that's what the podcast is named after i don't have it you're with me it's in my apartment or in my storage unit back in back home but uh actually i don't have any real liberty books but yeah do some reading and you know if you got free time if you're on lockdown hey Open up a fucking, open up a fucking, uh, open up Jefferson's uh, writings, or open up some Thomas Paine, or open up some John Locke. Go back to the beginning. Look at how all this started, and then read, um, you know, John Stuart Mill or Adam Smith or Hell. Even read books about Hamilton, because Hamilton honestly was the architect of our economic system of 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 all of corporatism. Hamilton is the corporatist architect. Yep. So when yep. you take it all the way back, um, educate yourself. And then, you know, you'll never really stop doing that. But once you've, once you sort of, if you adopt principles of self ownership and principles of um, individual autonomy, um, you know, 
don't know a, a worse way to say than like tell your friends, but like seriously, <laughs> like like uh, we have to get out of this sort of slave mentality. Um, it's like a slave mentality coupled with an entitlement complex, um, and we just got to break free of that. We just otherwise. You know, it's only, like I said, things are only going to get worse. Right. And, uh, yeah. So I'll segue over to you and let you pull up. Yeah, no. So, so that's, that's great. You know, you're, you're talking about, uh, education and, you know, so at the beginning, we talked a little of this episode, we talked a little bit about what's going on in Portland and the streets there and how things like that can sometimes make us really angry when we, we see the government. Uh, obviously overstepping its bounds and acting uh, outside of its authority uh, and actually doing oppressive, violent, tyrannical, despotic things to American people. And, you know, so the question is, what do you do? You know, we, there's, there's no debate anymore as to whether or not the United States federal government is a tyrannical government. It is. It's yeah. a tyrannical government. This is the government that the, the uh, American founders, the revolutionaries warned us about. We have it right now. The only question is, what are we going to do about it? Right. So, um, so you know, we watched that Ron Paul video where he, he uh, talked about patriotism on the floor of the, the uh, U.S. House of Representatives, and he ended by, by saying, you know, you have to kind of figure out for yourself what is your course of action. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of where we are right now. It's, you know, figure out what, what, what's the course of action that fits you best, uh, you know, to educate yourself and to educate others. Uh, maybe you want to be involved in, uh, in some kind of activism, um, maybe even some civil disobedience, uh, whatever it is, you know, to get active and to, to try to make a difference. And, um, so now you're talking just now about education. That's one of the things that we can do that that's actually productive that we can siphon and funnel our uh, anger or any other emotions and passion into. I'm going to go ahead and share here because I want to share uh, screen share here. Some, uh, uh, some resources for everybody. Can you see this? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the freedom uh, index. This is from the Cato Institute. Uh, I know not everybody watches the video. Some people listen to this podcast uh, online without video. So basically what this is, for those that can't see it, uh, this is coming, last one is from 2019. Human Freedom Index presents the state of human freedom in the world based on a broad measure um, they take into account a lot of different uh, um, measures to come up with their, their determination of each country's level of freedom. Right here are some of the things that they take into consideration, rule of law, uh, religion, expression, uh, you know, obviously journalism and the press, the size of the government, uh, sound money, access to sound money, um, you know, credit, labor, business, all that. So we come down here and look at some of the numbers 
the last available numbers on this from 2019. And read here, it says the jurisdictions that took the top 10 places in order. So again, this is starting from the most freest country in the world and going down the list. And guess who is not number one? Uh, jurisdictions in order, freest countries in the world. New Zealand, Switzerland, Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong has changed just in the last few weeks. Right, right, uh, right. Because the, the Chinese communists are cracking down on Hong Kong, and we've got protesters from Hong Kong becoming refugees coming away from Hong Kong. So I'm sure that one's going to drop in the next uh, uh, analysis. And after Hong Kong, they say Canada, Australia, Denmark, Luxembourg, Finland, Germany, Ireland. Yeah, so again, here at the, the bottom of the Freedom Index as of 2019, uh, you know, Russia at number 114, Turkey at number 122, China at 126, Saudi Arabia at 149, Iran at 154, Egypt at 157, all the way down to Syria, they've got ranked at the last right now at 162nd uh, in the world. So anyway, um, that's that's the state of freedom. And, you know, the title of this episode is the state of freedom, state of freedom in the United States. And, and here we go. This is now obviously yeah, the United States is going to drop as well after this year, uh, after what's happened under the Trump administration. Um, now, <clears throat> I also wanted to point out while we're here, uh, let me close out of this and I want to go over. Okay, so this is a, a website. The link is hawaii.edu slash power kills. Uh, this is a document by R.J. Rummel, an author who in 1994 started uh, to do this study and published this paper called Death by Government. Uh, there has been uh, updates since then, so you can get updated numbers, but this is where he started, and basically what he did was he measured the number of people who were murdered by their own governments across the 20th century. Um, again, this has been updated since 94, so we do have numbers going from 1900 to 1999, covering the whole 20th century now. Uh, here's this quote that he's included at the top says, truth will come to light, murder cannot be hid long, from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Anyway, um, so we go down here to the bullet points, and the first three bullet points, just uh, introduction, get down to the fourth bullet point, and he starts covering how many people were murdered by their own governments uh, in the 1900s. And the first one being the Soviet Gulag state, uh, just shy of 62 million people were murdered by the Soviets in the Gulag state uh, in the 20th century. Next behind that was over 35 million people murdered by the communist Chinese anthill uh, that refers to Mao Zedong and the Chinese starvation of mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the communists propagated there. Right. Next in line after that, just shy of 21 million people were murdered by the Nazi state, by, by the Third Reich. Uh, the genocide in Nazi Germany over the course of just those few years that it existed, uh, again, just shy of 21 million 
of its own people that were murdered by that state. And then after that is the depraved nationalist regime. Uh, that's just another Chinese regime, uh, just in a different period of time than the communist regime. Uh, this is more like back in the 1920s, I believe, was the, the nationalist regime uh, of China that murdered over 10 million people. So, you know, put that uh, Chinese communist and the nationalists together uh, in the 20th century, you know, they, they murdered over 45 million people altogether right. in the 20th century. You know, of course, there's some more down here. You can go down here and look at these others. Japan's savage military, Japan murdered uh, almost 6 million of its own people. And uh, then the next one in line is over 2 million people murdered by the Khmer Rouge. Uh, obviously, the Khmer Rouge was Pol Pot and the communists of Cambodia. Uh -huh. uh, and then it goes on down the line and then they add up all these numbers. Uh, you add up all these numbers and what you get, uh, let's see. So again, now what we have is in the, in the uh, 1900s or the 20th century, uh, over the course of the century, governments murdered 262 million of their own people as a grand total. All governments combined over the 20th century murdered 262 million of their own people. Now, I wanted, I thought that was an awful lot of people for, uh, for governments to murder, to genocide of their own people. But, you know, it, it made me ask the question, well, if governments murdered 262 million of their own people in the 20th century, then how does that compare to how many people died in warfare in the 20th century? Right. I'm talking about all across the globe. Right. So I went and looked that up and here's that number. Remember 262 million murders by governments of their own people. And here my source is the New York times from an article uh, in 2003, how many people have died in war? And it says at least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. Estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout all of human history range from 150 million to 1 billion. All right, so 108 million people that died in warfare in the 20th century compared to 262 million that were murdered by their own governments. It's less than half, yeah. Less, less than half of, this, of that amount died in warfare uh, than were killed by their own governments. So who, who is the real enemy? Who is your real enemy, folks? Who is your real enemy? That, that foreign army, that foreign country, that foreign military, that your, your uh, drum-beating, you know, war drum-beating political leaders want to make you fear, you know, that, that country, the terrorist from overseas, they're not nearly as dangerous to your life and your liberty as your own government. I guarantee you. Right. All right. So uh, now <clears throat> let me skip here, uh, change the subject just slightly, because I want to introduce people to a couple of things that I, I think you should, um, I sh you should check it out on, on your own. Uh, first of all, uh, I just wanted to plug this right here. This is uh, the Joe Rogan experience, his podcast, this is episode number 1,508 with Peter Schiff. 
again, that's uh, episode 1508 with Peter Schiff. I watched this whole thing the other day. Uh, it's three hours long, but it is an epic breakdown of basic economic principles and exactly what has uh, the government done with its monetary spending response uh, through the Federal Reserve in response to this COVID-19 thing. Uh, uh, Peter Schiff just does a genius, brilliant job of breaking it all down and explaining uh, what's happened uh, and, and in a way that I think that, that laymen can understand. I also wanted to plug one other, uh, this is just a channel here. Uh, this is Bow of the Fifth Column. Anybody who is not familiar with Bow of the Fifth Column, uh, again, he's just a human being. He can be wrong, uh, and I won't always agree with, with him, but Bo does a great job of doing short little snippet videos uh, just on topics. A lot of times he'll choose the news of the day or a, a hot topic, uh, you know, from recent news or whatnot, and he'll do a short little video, and uh, he'll talk about good core fundamental principles as well as apply those to, uh, to the news cycle and what's going on now. Um, also, I want to take your attention over here. This is another website. So uh, this goes back to, you know, you were talking earlier about what can we do in the modern state of America, the uh, state of freedom, the way it is right now, what can we do? One of the things we can do is educate ourselves and others. Uh, right. share re resources with one another. So this is one of the resources that I want to share with the viewers, with the listeners. Uh, this is a website. The link is flexyourrights.org. Uh, so flex your rights, right? Again, flexyourrights.org. And you'll see the tabs here, but you can go down and they have everything from uh, articles and blogs. They have videos that you can watch that uh, not only teach you about your rights, but also uh, some of them even have kind of a step-by-step walkthrough of how to flex your rights, how, how to use your rights uh, in an encounter with the police or go other government officials, whatever. Uh, and then one more resource that I wanted to share with people that I, I think could be helpful, especially right now, uh, this website is fija.org. Uh, FIJA.org. The acronym stands for Fully Informed Jury Association. Uh, jury duty is for heroes, is what they say. And basically, they advocate that if you get jury duty, that you should take it. Now, some people are going to tell you, don't, you know, don't take jury duty, and they have their own reasons for not wanting to participate in jury duty. That's fine, whatever. But if you're one of those people who is inclined to take jury duty, you're going to find that you have uh, power within the jury box uh, that can set people free. Yeah. Um, basically, the idea is that you always have a right to practice uh, your beliefs in good conscience. And that if you find something morally reprehensible and that it goes against your conscience, uh, that you do not have to uphold a law that you, you believe is immoral, unlawful, unconscionable, uh, that if someone is, if, a, if you're in the jury box and the defendant who is in court 
has done something that you don't think uh, should be prosecuted. In other words, let's take this to a real world example. I'm going to go ahead and, and stop screen share here. Take it to a real world example. So for those of us who don't believe in the war on drugs, you know, we believe that the laws that regulate drug use are uh, immoral and unlawful and, and should not exist. And therefore they're unjustified and illegitimate. And we don't believe that anybody should be uh, prosecuted and or locked up for uh, whatever it is that you do or don't want to ingest or inject or take into your own body somehow. Right. And so if you're on, if you get called for jury duty and you're on the jury and the defendant is being uh, charged with a drug charge, uh, not a violent crime. I'm not going to talk about violent crime right now. I'm just talking about uh, uh, what's defined as crime that is not violent and is right. not really a crime. There's no victim, so there is no crime. That's how right. it really works. That's what yeah. uh, true true law is, is that if there's no victim, there's no crime, and the state cannot be a victim. Right. So, in other words, there's no such thing as a crime against the state. Or society. So if you have, or society. So if you have jury duty in a situation like that, even if the prosecutor proves his case against the defendant, says, hey, you have to vote guilty to convict this person uh, because I have proven that he is guilty of this charge, uh, this drug possession or this drug, uh, uh, what, you know, this drug charge, then you as a jury person have the right to say, no, this law is against my conscience. It's against my, uh, my, uh, uh, my moral and uh, my moral compass and, and what I believe to be Truthful, truthfully lawful. And so therefore I'm going to vote not guilty and I'm going to make sure that that defendant is set free because I don't believe he should be uh, prosecuted. So jury nullification, it's, it's an idea if now ideally everybody would be educated enough. We, we would have enough people educated as to their jury rights, their right to nullify laws from the jury box. Right. We would have enough, you know, ideally we would have enough people educated as to the game. And so anytime somebody was in court being prosecuted as a defendant uh, for anything that, that, uh, that is, that is, you know, really shouldn't be against the law, we would have the right and the ability, the power from the jury box to make sure that they're set free and, and not tyrannized by this government. So now the other side of that is, that unfortunately in the, the current criminal justice system, uh, prosecutors are uh, uh, guilty of a practice, uh, what some people are charging. In other words, there's really only one or two charges that you know you could get somebody on, uh, but you bring a defendant into uh, questioning and you, you levy like seven or eight or 10 different charges against them just so you can uh, negotiate them to cop a plea and to do less jail time for pleading guilty to one or two charges as opposed to going to court and having to fight nine or 10 or 12 charges. Right. So these prosecutors will overcharge people knowing that people don't want to take the risk on going to court 
and end up having to uh, uh, serve the full 20, 30, 40 years or life sentence or whatever it is on all the charges brought against them if a jury messes up. And what the defendant instead does is they cop a plea with the prosecutor that says, okay, well, if you plea to this charge or this charge, then what I'm going to do is we're going to skip your trial by jury and uh, you're going to cop a plea and you're only going to do three years, you know, and maybe you'll get out earlier than that on good time or probation or whatever. Um, but the idea is that the prosecutors overcharge so as to, uh, um, discourage people from using their constitutional right to trial by jury. You always have a constitutional right to trial by jury. It's part of your due process. It's in, enshrined in the constitution. You absolutely have a right to trial by jury for any charges levied against you. Unfortunately, it's in the single digits usually as to how many people actually go to court and fight charges in a trial. The right. vast majority of people cop a plea and then that's how we end up with mass incarceration in the United States where again uh, we are the United States is only five percent of the world's population yet we have somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the world's prison population largely due to mass incarceration uh, uh, largely due to uh, people copping a plea and and uh, and prosecutorial overcharge. It's really a, a, an abuse of prosecutorial power. Really right. needs to be curbed. Uh, you know, we really need to do something about that as well. But anyway, so that's, that's basically what I had to share. There's obviously a lot of other resources. I, I'd like to be able to, to share other resources with people. But basically, I just want to encourage you, uh, whether you're a libertarian or not, whether you're an American or not, Republican, Democrat, and everybody else, I want to encourage you to continue to educate yourself about your own freedom, about your own liberty. Uh, you know, look up things like voluntarism, natural rights, negative liberties. Uh, read the Declaration of Independence. You know, like Adam, uh, my buddy, uh, other Adam here was saying, you know, find uh, the books that, that you can read that, that are going to inform you uh, as, as to a better understanding of your own freedom, your own liberty, and how to defend your freedom and your liberty, and how we together cannot, uh, don't have to be one another's enemies, but how we, the people, together can unite, and together we can stand against at the state as enemies of the state. It's time for